You know how sometimes it's, but oh no, I have to video in the first try. Um, but anyway, Moses, right? So he's there. These two guys don't come to the tabernacle and they start to prophesy and someone rats them out. They go and someone in the camp goes and tattles. And then Joshua looks at Moses and said, do you want me to go over there and tell them to quit it? And he goes, are you jealous for me? Oh, that all men would prophesy. Oh, that the spirit would fall on all men and they would prophesy. What is he saying? It is exhausting leading people with external motivation. Think about that. Extrinsic motivators, extrinsic, I got to take these earrings off. They're driving me nuts. Extrinsic motivation does not work. It is behavior modification. It worked to tell you it's an easy, easy deal. I dance with my scriptures and sometimes it's not so easy. This week, not so easy. But the thing is, like when I struggle with it or I just can't, I don't know. And I can't even tell you what I don't get when I'm not getting it. You know what I mean? It's just something. <laughs> and then you do. And then it may, and it may even happen in the middle of the night. And then it is just the beauty of this plan and how it came into fruition is so amazing that I, I just, I just can't even wait to jump in. Okay. Jesus has ascended to the right hand of God the Father. They, he has poured out his spirit um, onto the 12. Um, we've talked about the fact that it was Ezekiel 37, right before their eyes. It was all of the bones. It was the nation of Israel brought back together with the 12. Jesus the King is seated on his throne. He is true representative of Israel. He has been called out of Egypt. He's passed through the waters. He's been tested in the wilderness. He has lived out for us true humanity of how we were created to live. This is what the kingdom of heaven looks like. And he allowed the beasts uh, to trample over him um, at the cross. He died. He paid the penalty for sin and he was raised from the dead. And as Daniel 7 says, that son of man was ascended and seated at the right hand of God the Father. We're going to look at that. But he has now poured out the promise of the Father, the Holy Spirit on this new 12 and all the tribes of Israel are present from all over the known map. I love the fact that you see the redemption of the judgment of the scattering of the 12 tribes of Israel uh, under the Assyrians, which remember God allowed different kingdoms to come in and be his tool of judgment. He didn't cause the Assyrians to be wicked. He allowed them to do what they do. And they came in back in the intertestamental period in the times of Daniel, and they came in and crushed Israel and scattered all the known tribes. But what is happening at Pentecost? They're all present. They've all come into Pentecost, that holiday that celebrates, it was a pilgrimage and it celebrates the harvest. You uh, offer Thanksgiving to God, the first sheaves of wheat, that it all comes from him. And here at Pentecost, you're seeing the very first fruits of the filling of the Holy Spirit, the regeneration of the Holy Spirit beginning in these 12. And you also pray with that, Lord, may all the harvests come in like this. That is Pentecost. And not only that, it is when Moses gave the law, entering into this new covenant relationship. And here you see, this is not a law written by the hand of God on stone tablets, but what is happening? The Spirit of God is being poured out on his people and he is removing the stone from us and giving us a heart of flesh where the precepts, the, the word of God is written on our heart. And you see this by these tongues coming down and they're preaching the gospel of the kingdom and all of the nations are hearing it in their language. And many are changed, but there are some that say what? what's going on? They're drunk. Okay. And Peter steps up, right? And says, no, we're not drunk. 
Bars aren't even open. It's nine o'clock in the morning, right? No, what you are seeing is that which Joel spoke of, which this that you're seeing is that. And we talked about last week how it is so marvelous because it even goes back further, this desire to see that God would pour out his spirit on all flesh. And I think I told you about, I think it's Numbers chapter 11, where Moses is just flat worn out from leading the people. Because do you remember how the Holy Spirit operated in the Old Testament? He was with the nation of Israel, but he came upon certain priests and prophets and kings to be able to lead Israel, all right? And Moses was one of them, and, and so he was worn out. Remember, he got uh, an advice from his father-in-law to delegate, and he then chooses 12 to come to the tabernacle in where the Spirit of God would come over them and they would prophesy. But two of them didn't come to the tabernacle. They remained in the camp. And what happened? Did I teach you this last week or no? Okay, well, I'll teach it to you now. I don't know. I teach this four times in a week. I can't remember who was. You know, it's not always the same. You should come to a Wednesday morning. By Wednesday morning, I got it down, okay? Y'all are my first ones. Wednesday morning, they love it because I know what needs to be in there and what doesn't. I know what fell right and what doesn't. So I kind of edit. Um, that's kind of why I wish Wednesday was videoed. You know, it kind of gives me some practice for a while. It's the schoolmaster. It's what we do with children when we give them boundaries, right? But at some point, what happens? The boundaries are gone. I used to tell my kids, you know, it's my job to be the best fence. It's your job to be the best bull. Okay? You could try to be the best bull you want to be, but I'm going to try to be the best fence I can be. But at one point, the gate flies open. Right? And so what do we have to do? It has, we all know there has to be a, a transformation of the heart because it's intrinsic motivation that actually changes our life. And so Moses is saying, oh, that the spirit of God would pour out and all men would prophesy. So what Moses longed for and Joel, what? Prophesied would happen is now happening at Pentecost. And so you have this temple language that this fire, God's presence comes down and dwells inside of man. And now those men are unified spirit of God in the body of Christ, but they keep their diversity and their own language. And man, what he says, you think our relationship's coming to the end? It's just getting started. You ain't seen nothing yet. This thing's about to blow up. And that's what happened. And they go back with that gospel message, right? So he is forming a sermon to prove to them what they are seeing and how is he going to prove it? He's going to prove it by using their Old Testament scriptures, that's important, and by his own eyewitness experience. And so he starts with Joel. What you are seeing is that. And then he continues and he is going to now go into the psalm. Isn't it interesting how much the psalm has come into uh, our teaching in the book of Acts. We've already looked at some of the Psalms. I've already taught you that it is the Psalms that teach us to pray. It is the Psalms that give language to our emotion. And so we are not surprised when in those 10 days after Jesus ascends that they are waiting for the promise of the Father, the power of the Holy Spirit. They are unified in prayer. So what do you think a lot what do you think they're reading? A lot. The Psalms. And what they are doing is when they are searching the Psalms and they're going back and they're reading the prophets, what's happening? All of a sudden, they're having all these, oh, snap. That's Jesus in that, right? Now, was it necessarily the... Uh, the vision of the one back then who said it clearly? No. But now they are looking at the types and the foreshadowing and the, the signposts, and they're, re, they're looking at it now on this side of the resurrection. They're like, oh my. 
Oh my gosh. And that is what is happening. So he begins to show what he has seen as proof of who Jesus is. So chapter two, verse 22. That was all intro. <laughs> Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty wonders and works and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourself know. I love that. He's like, we're talking about Jesus of Nazareth. He showed you so many signs and wonders, right? Why didn't they see? Because they refused to see. That's the only reason. He showed so many proofs that at the end of the day, the only reason they couldn't see is because they refused to see. We know they saw, we know they thought this because think about what Nicodemus said when he came and he met with Jesus at night. We know that you are sent by God because of what? Because of all things that you are doing. You have to be from God. Nicodemus said that. And so he's saying, you saw all the proofs and the evidences. This Jesus, he says, delivered up according to a definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Boy, there is a lot in there. I'm not going to go down a whole theology trail today, but I'm going to tell you this. In one sentence, he is saying, this is the sovereign plan of God, okay? Which tells us, right, this has been a plan all along. This is where it was going. Jesus gave his life. It was not taken from him. He is sovereign. This is God's will, but what? It doesn't erase the responsibility of man. It was God's plan, his sovereign will that he were to be crucified. But do not be mistaken. You chose to crucify him. You looked in the face of God and said, crucify. And it was, and you used unlawful men, meaning non what? Not Romans. But who did it? You did it. You crucified him. He says this, God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David saying concern him. So where are we going? We're going to go into the psalm. Okay, so he says this, for David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand, that I may not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades, okay, which is the grave, and let your holy ones see corruption or decay. You have made known to me the path of life. You will make me full of gladness in your presence. Okay. Do you remember how I always say what is just happening is they are speaking Old Testament to people fluent in Old Testament? So, for example, when Jesus said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That was like the first line of a song that they knew. They could finish it. And so he was showing, it was like reading his journal of what was going on. Okay, so now... He has chosen to use Psalm 16. Well, I personally can never grasp something fully until I know what the reference was about. All right. So what I decided, to, so I've got my Psalm journal now. All right. And I'm going to walk you through uh, what I believe David in his time is saying in Psalm 16. Okay, so I'm just going to read you just some of my notes from just my personal journal. Okay, it says it's a Psalm of David. I love how John Piper encourages us to try to think of David's thoughts after him. Like, what was David thinking? But to fill his affection with him as he moves through the Psalm. That's what we do. Like, what was the author thinking and feeling at the time, and then what? How do I feel those same things? Because the issue of the psalm is that the psalms give words to what? Emotion. 
What kind of emotion? Human emotion. What it is to be human. It's what we have in common. That's why they sang them for thousands of years. It's, it's how we relate in song. And he says this. Here's verse one. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. This whole psalm is shaped for that desire. Preserve me. Preserve me, O God. There doesn't seem to be an imminent danger or situation, but it's a continual preservation. It can also be read like this grammatically. Preserve me because I take refuge in you. It can also be, I declare you are a refuge for me. Therefore, preserve me. Declaring what God is for him, reminding himself of the hope he has is preservation. He says this in verse two, if you want to go to Psalm 16, go, because we're going to look at it for a while. Are you there? I'm going to give you a minute. My mother tells me I'm too fast. Are we all there? Because I'm, I'm literally going to hit some of this a verse at a time. Yep. Okay. Verse two, I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. Let's look at that. What do you see is the difference between the two lords? And I've taught you this before. One is in all caps and the other is what? Just one. Capitalize, right? The all caps is the uh, name Yahweh. All right? Yahweh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph, the God of Moses, the great I am, the self-sufficient one, right? All things come from me. You need anything? What? I am. All right? But the second one, you are my Lord, is Adonai. All right? So what he is saying there is master, my master. You are sovereign over me. It is not unique, okay, that both of those are in one sentence, all right? That God, who he is, his name is Yahweh, right? But he is addressed as my sovereign, my master. And so that's what he is doing. And he goes on to say that Yahweh you are my Adonai. I have no good apart from you. He is telling himself, you are my supreme treasure. Anything good, right? All that I have and all that I am, all good comes from you. That's what he is saying. He then goes in verse three and says, as for the saints in the land, they are the excellent one in whom is all my delight. I delight in the people of God. The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. I hope that when you hear phrases, it makes you think of other things in scriptures. But where have you heard sorrows being multiplied? I will multiply your pain. Genesis, right? In the punishments, when you ran after other gods, thinking what? You were going to get more, right? You were going to get, somehow you were going to get more. That at the end of the day, what happened? Your sorrows were multiplied, right? Your sorrows were multiplied. Last night when I listened to the message at CCV, so much of that message was in this, Right? Uh, of the goodness of God being in the boundaries. And we're going we're gonna to look at that. It says to run after other gods brings exponentially more sorrow. I thought of the verse, there is a way that seems right to men, but in the end, it leads to death. David is saying, I don't want to do that. I won't even speak their names. In verse five, he says, the Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. You are my choice. You are my treasure. You are my choice steak and wine. You hold my lot. Do you remember what I told you lots were? It's like 
you know what? You hold the dice. When it comes to my life, you hold the dice. My life is in your hands. You are my portion. Verse six, it says, the lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. The lines, that's borders and boundaries. Your borders and boundaries have fallen for me in pleasures. I have a beautiful future, right? God's boundaries do not magnify suffering. He does not hold good things for us. His boundaries, what? They, bring, they keep us in the land of pleasure and what we were created to have. So you have this contrast chasing after the world and our sorrows being multiplied compared to trusting and we end up within the boundaries of pleasure and we have a great inheritance. This is the idea. It says, I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also my heart instructs me. Now he says, you're my counselor. I seek your counsel. It reminds me, he said, and then at night I can trust my heart. Why? It reminds me of Romans 12 too. Do not be conformed any longer to what? The pattern of this world, but be transformed, changed from the inside out. How? By the renewing of your mind, which is often synonymous heart and mind. So you are my counselor. I seek you. And you are transforming me where my heart instructs me at night. Also reminds me of seek first what? The kingdom of God and all these other things will be added. So here's the thing. The first seven verses, David has been exalting what God is for him. And now the petition of verse one, which was what? What was his petition? What did he ask for? Preserve me. Now the petition turns into a statement of confidence. Look at verse eight. So in verse one, he's saying, preserve me. And for the next seven verses, he is showing himself what God is for him. And now in verse eight, he steps up with this confidence. I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I will not be shaken. Do you understand? Verse one, he is saying, you are my refuge. I hide in you. Verse two, you are my sovereign Lord. You are Adonai. You hold my lot. The dice is in your hand. I reverence you. I submit to you. You are my treasure. Verse six, your boundaries enclose me in pleasure. Verse seven, you are my trusted counselor. And he is saying, it is because of all this, what? I will not be shaken. That is the song we sang not too long ago. I will bow before you, Lord. I will rise in confidence. I will see your goodness, Lord, in the land I'm living in. What starts? I will bow before you, Lord. I will remind myself who you are, who you are to me, that you are sovereign, that everything good comes from you, that my life is in your hand. You hold the lots. And when I remind myself of that, when I want to be preserved, what will I do? Then I will rise in what? In confidence. Because I will see your goodness, Lord, in the land I'm living in. And then it is so beautiful because how will he be preserved? Now here's the part. Verse nine, therefore my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwell secure. All of this realization brings joy. My heart is glad. My whole being rejoices. Why? Well, at first he asked to be preserved, but now he says, my flesh dwells secure. How? Read the next verse. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or the grave or Hades, all synonymous, the land of the dead apart from the presence of God. You will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. He's saying, don't let me be lost in death. 
away from your presence. Don't let me be shaken from the land of the living. Keep my body and soul forever. And David is sure that all God has done for him, that he's his refuge and treasure and Lord and counselor, that he will be that forever. And death will not be the end of their relationship. Death will not cancel out all that he has known and loved about his God. Here's the point. Death is not the end. This is what David is saying. Death does not get the last word. Does he understand exactly how? No. But he says, you are all these things to me. You have always been all these things. My life is what? It is in your hand. So I am confident that even in death, what? You won't abandon me. I don't know exactly know how, but it will not get the last word because look at verse 11, you will make known to me the path of life. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Our relationship somehow will continue. You won't abandon me from your presence. You will make known to me the path of life. And so Peter now in Acts 2 is saying, oh, snap. (gasps) David didn't fully see it coming. Because David knew he was going to die. Let me show you. 2 Samuel 7. 12 through 13, the prophet tells him that when he dies, when he lays with his fathers, that he will have an heir and that heir will build him a house. And we know that that's even overlaid even more because his true heir will what? He going to be the house, right? And that his kingdom will last forever. Do you think he understood fully back then how that would lay out? No, but what is he saying? I trust you will not betray me to the grave. You will not remove your presence from me. He is not saying death doesn't get, uh, he is just saying death doesn't get the final word. Now we understand why. The very thing that he trusted in faith, Peter and them have what? They've seen it. Can you imagine? They are in, I can just picture him for 10 days reading these Psalms with the other guys. This is, now just write this in pencil. This is just my imagination. This is not theology in any way. But in my mind, I just see them searching and reading because Jesus has started the seminary process. He has been revealing things to them for 40 days. They don't want that to end. Now they're looking, man, this is a treasure. This is what I hope I can at all do for you. If I can show you enough how awesome it is, if you had all these wow, aha moments, then what? You're going to go look for yourself. And now they're looking for 10 days. And can you imagine when he reads Psalm 16? And he goes, whoa, that is Jesus. Now I get it. Oh my gosh. What David saw in faith, I've seen with what? My eyes, you guys, you know he got up. You know Peter, John, James and John. Look at this. This is amazing. And so now he is using it. And he's saying the grave could not hold him. His body would not see decay. He was made known. He has made known the paths of life. He has, uh, his presence has made us full of gladness. What is the symbol of one of the things of the Holy Spirit? Joy, right? And then he says, at your right hand are pleasures. Look at Acts 2, 33. What did that say? Acts 2, 33. Being therefore, so I'm gonna read 29 because I didn't keep going. He quotes the psalm, and then he explains it like I just basically did. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. It's over by the pool of Siloam. So we know that the fulfillment of this psalm could not be 
King David, right? Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Christ. Now, did he, like, literally? No, but I believe he foresaw in faith towards some things, right? That his God would not betray him to the grave, would not remove his... Uh, and that their relation, death would not have the last say, and that somehow it involved his heir, that one day his heir would be seated on the throne, and that was involved. He saw that. So as, as a type of prophet, he spoke about the resurrection of Christ, that he was not abandoned to the grave, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, of that we are all witnesses being therefore exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit that he has poured out this that you yourself are seeing. This is the fact. So this pouring out of the Spirit and this fulfillment of um, Psalm 16 is showing that he is that Christ that he is that son of David, that he was not betrayed to the grave. His body saw no corruption. And not only did the Psalm speak of him, we saw it with our own eyes because he has ascended to the right hand of God the Father. Mm, this is so good. For David did not ascend into heaven, but he himself saying this, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand, until I make your enemies your footstool. I remember reading that back in the day. I'm like, what? Do y'all read that and go, what does that even mean? Well, let me help you. Let's go back to my psalm journal. Y'all need a psalm journal. Work through these psalms. Okay? That is Psalm 110. You want to go there? Let's do it. Sure. Why are we in a hurry? <laughs> I just don't think you can fully understand what they're saying if you don't really know what the psalm is saying to the psalmist. It's obviously written by David. Okay? It's short. It's only seven verses. It is the most quoted psalm in all the New Testament. That's a big deal. That actual portion is quoted seven times. It is alluded to more than 27 times. And here's what it says. The Lord says to my Lord. Now, now you're scholars. Look at the Lord's. All capital, what is it? Yahweh. One capital, what is it? Adonai. But in his other psalm, right, he says that Yahweh, but you are my Adonai. Be, so it, it seems as if they are what? One. So that's not a problem. But look at this one. Here it says, Yahweh says to my Adonai. What does that seem like? Two, right? Hold that thought. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. The Lord will extend your mighty scepter from Zion. You will rule in the midst of your enemies. Your troops will be willing on your day of battle, arrayed in holy majesty from the womb of dawn. You will receive the dew of your youth. The Lord... Adonai was sworn, the Lord has sworn and will no, not change his mind. You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. So Adonai is at your right hand and he will crush kings on the day of his wrath. He will judge the nations, heaping up the dead and crushing the rulers of the whole earth. He will drink from a brook beside the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. Wow. So Yahweh, right, is the self-existent I am, 
But Adonai is Lord, ruler, master, sovereign, supreme authority. Okay, it's power. So who's the second God? Well, let me give you some hints. What did he say? What did it say about him? It said he is a king who will rule. He is a priest forever. He will judge the nations. So he's a king. He's a priest. He's a judge. And he will set up his throne from Zion. He is Lord. He is priest. He is judge. And he is the soon coming king. Well, that would have been unique because what did the Jewish people believe? What was their Shema? Deuteronomy chapter 6. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. All right? So it had to be confusing. Well, I wonder how Jesus used it. Right out beside this Psalm, Matthew 22, 41 through 46. And go read that later because I'm just going to summarize it for you. Okay? Because don't you care how he uses it? Okay, that's a big deal. It's the same as when I taught you Matthew 26 when Jesus used the phrase son of man. The most important thing is what did he, how did he use it? So he's going to use this. And so in Matthew 22, it's the last week approaching the Passover and his crucifixion. And uh, Jesus has, remember, he's entered in riding on what? A donkey, which represents royalty coming in peace. People are singing, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. I mean, this is a deal. This is heightened, is he the Christ, okay? And so then the leaders get him in the temple and they attempt to entrap him. That's what's going on in Matthew 22. And the Pharisees ask him about taxes. The Sadducees ask him about the afterlife. You know, if you've been married several times and you go to heaven, then who's your... I mean, just crazy. And then the scribes ask him about the law. Which law is the most important? But the whole point is to do what? Entrap him. Okay? So then Jesus does his thing. And he says, all right, I've answered your questions. Now let me ask you one. Whose son is the Christ? And they're like, that's elementary. Everybody knows that. Whose son is the Christ? David. Right, David. He's like, welcome to my trap, said the spider to the fly. Everyone knows that. That's easy. Okay. Then how is it then that David, speaking by the Spirit, calls him Lord? What's he quoting? Psalm 110. And Yahweh said to Adonai, what? Sit down at my right hand, rest until I make your enemies what? Your footstool. So he is saying, how is it that David, speaking by the Spirit, calls him Lord? If he's Lord, Jesus says, how could he be his son? Who? Crickets. Nothing. They got nothing. And from that moment on, guess what? They didn't ask him another question. Not one. The point was this. If Messiah was a distant heir of David... How could he have called him Lord while he was still alive? Well, what do we know? Look at Revelation twenty-two sixteen. What is he called? What is Jesus? What is the Messiah? He will be the root of David and what? And the offspring. Okay? He is the root which is at the beginning, and he is also the offspring. Look at Micah 5.2. I love Micah 5, so look, look at that one. You can see Jesus. I know they had to have aha moments with Micah. Look at verse 2, 5.2, Micah 5.2. But you, O Bethlehem, 
who are too little to me among the clans of Judah. From you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is what? From old and from ancient of days. But didn't Jesus also say this? Didn't he tell them in John 8? What did he say? Before Abraham was born, what? I am. That is what he is saying. I also want to point out to you, look, it says in, in Micah 3, Therefore he shall give them up unto the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel, and he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they shall dwell secure. For now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. All You can see all of the New Testament foreshadowed in that when it says, for a time they will be given over, but what one day something will... It, the one who has birth pains will give birth. Do you remember Matthew 24? It's going to seem when I sit on the throne that nothing has changed. Because the beasts are still going to roar. They're going to do what they do. They build empires. They're always trying to go back to Babel. But what? Don't fret. These are birth pains. What does that mean? In the middle of all this, something is growing. And Micah says... That at one point, what? She will give birth. And it will be a joyful, everybody will come back together. And then look at the, the end part of it. I love because it says, hold on, let me find it. It says, and they shall dwell secure for now. He shall be great to the ends of the earth and he shall be their peace. What was one of the last things Jesus says? Peace I leave you. My peace what? I give you. And so you have this beautiful thing going on here. The fact that Jesus was the root of David. He was his Lord then. And he will also be the shoot. And then, he's, then the other point is, if the Messiah was just a human descendant, then why call him Lord? If the Christ is just a king, then why would David call him Adonai, Lord? David knew somehow that this coming king, his descendant, would be greater than him. Someone that was before him and someone that would be greater than him. And now these eyewitnesses are stepping forward saying what? This was Jesus, the one that was before him and after him, the one that was greater than him. How do we know it? Because David didn't get up out of the grave and ascend to the right hand of God the Father. Jesus did. And they say it over and over. They prove it. Look at Mark 16, 19. Mark says this. So then the Lord Jesus, after he had spoken to them, was taken up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. Did they see him sit down? But what did they know when they were watching him being taken up on the clouds? And he had been teaching them about the kingdom for 40 days. And what do they know now? He is the fulfillment of what David saw coming. This is the true king. He is not only king, he is Lord because he has ascended and he is set down at the right hand of God the Father. And that is what Peter is saying in his sermon. And it's also, look at Hebrews 10. Paul says the same thing. This is their understanding. Hebrews 10, 11. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sin, what did he do? He sat down. The work was done. He sat down at the right hand of God, 
waiting for the time until his enemies should be made what? His footstool. What is he quoting? Psalm 110. The thing that David looked forward to, they are all seeing it. Every eyewitness saw it and recognized it. Look, one last thing and then I'll tie it up. Ephesians 1, look at that. I love to hear the turning of the pages personally. Do you? It says this. Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. What is our hope? It's the question. It says this. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? What is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dimension and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet. And gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. They all saw it. They all saw in Jesus the fulfillment of Psalm 110. And think about all of that sums up what David was feeling. Right? You are my treasure. You are my refuge. Anything good that I have or that I am comes from you. It is all in your hands. My life is in your hands. I trust you. David didn't fully see how it was going to pan out, but he knew that death did not get the final word. And he knew that God would not betray him from his presence, that this relationship would continue. And somehow it would continue through his heir that one day would be on the throne and have an eternal kingdom. And now Peter and all of them are like, snap, that's it. It was Jesus. He has been seated. We watched him rise and now he is seated at the right hand of God the Father and he is ruling in the presence of his enemies and we wait until one day it is complete and they are all a footstool for him. It is Daniel 7 before their very eyes. Do you understand this? And do you remember that Jesus warned them? You say I'm the Christ. I say something even more. I'm the son of man. I'm not just the Christ, the King, the heir of David. I'm Lord. Because you will see me, right? Ascend to the right hand of God the Father, he says in Matthew 26. And you will see me coming on the clouds. You will see me in judgment when I destroy the temple in AD 70. This is the point. Look at the last part of Peter's sermon. What does he say? Here is his point. He uses Joel. He uses both things of, of the psalm. And Peter declares in verse 36 that God has made him both Lord and Christ. This Jesus whom you crucified. N.T. Wright says this, and they saw in this psalm too the massive sense looming up behind even the exalted title of the Messiah, that in Jesus they had been looking at the human face of God himself. Not only was Jesus your Messiah, you looked in the face of God. And you know what you did? You killed him. I'm going to tell you what, that sermon, that will get you. And they were cut to the heart. And they are like, what do we do? And then he really starts to preach. Are you ready? Okay, let me ask you something. Do you have enough this week that you didn't fully grasp, but you kind of did? That you can now spend some time 
Because can, I, I'm going to remind you over and over and over again. This is the anchor of our soul. This is what holds you. I am evangelical, but I am called to equip the saints. It, it, it's what I do. And I want to equip you to get your face in the book so that you can study, so that when you bow down, you can rise up knowing who God is. You can rise up in confidence and say, oh, yeah, I will see your goodness, Lord, in the land I'm living in. Go home. If all you get is this, then all you've done is eaten my regurgitated food. That's disgusting. You can live on it. I can keep you alive a little. But you will not be strong and healthy and vibrant in your faith when the storms come if all you do is eat regurgitated food from somebody else who chews it up. Because I will tell you, I'm worn out. Because when I'm chewing it up, guess who he's addressing? Me. All through these Psalms in my notebooks, I have applications of how the world do I not trust God even now. How is that possible? Of all that I know, and it is the same thing, it's because every day I don't bow down and remind myself, fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of your faith. That's what gets us through. So get home, get all those notes that don't make sense right now because they're all chicken scratching. If you wait for four days to look at that notebook, you will not even have a clue as to why you wrote what you did. Go home now, later tonight, and look over your notes and write in some things. And study. Get your face in the book. Dance with your scriptures. All right, Lord, thank you so much for today. Your word is like honey to my lips. I fought for it, Lord. I struggled over it last night to understand. There's something about the way you made me, Lord, that I have to dig so deep to fully understand it so that I can put it in the simplest forms. But man, when I see, and, and I don't completely see because it's too marvelous. I can only see what at the moment you've given me, but wow, is it beautiful. The faith of David blows my mind that he could see so clearly through faith, I cannot help but hear in the words of David the same faint cry. I don't really see you, God, clearly. My God, my God, why have thou forsaken me? But into your hands I commit my spirit. I don't see it clear, but what I see is clear enough to know that I can trust you. What I see is clear enough to know that I can trust you. God, help me be that kind of citizen of your kingdom to know that I can trust you in all things. Man, we love you, and I pray, God, that today as your eye goes to and fro throughout all the earth, searching for hearts that are completely yours, that you will be tickled to death at the pleasing aroma coming out of Life Church. We love you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.